0: You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes... No, 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 no. For the next 90 minutes, (laughs) we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR and I'm Simon Simon tell me something Yo. driving in the car on the way over here yeah there was an incident where I got to a roundabout and the person who was indicating to come off to a roundabout was indicating prior to the turning before the turning he wanted <laughs> I could tell I could tell by the positioning of the car in the roundabout that he wasn't going off at the turning before so I stopped and waited and let him go Mm. So, I've got to ask you a question, Simon. <laughs> do people's indicating or lack of indicating, is that something that annoys you too? Intensely.
1: Intensely.
0: Oh. And why do you think I brought this up,
1: Simon? Because I did a Facebook update only earlier this evening. About people who don't indicate when they should. Well, in, in as much as they don't use indicators as indicators, they don't indicate what they're intending to do. Yeah. Surely that's... there's. Is it the Greek bit at the start, the in bit, which in, infers that you do it before you actually do the action? Oh, I don't know. When I'm
0: at home, that Greek bit that says <laughs> in <laughs> means something else entirely to me. Oh, know yes, any? of course. <clears throat> uh, Fusil, Ger- so the moral of this story, ladies and gentlemen, is if you're driving mm. a car mm. and you want to turn, indicate so that other people on the road know what your intentions are. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the driver behind you or the driver in front of you. It could be a pedestrian or anybody or anything. A duck. I a duck the other <laughs> week because I forgot to indicate and the duck didn't know I was coming. True story, Simon. Stop laughing. Fusel. Uh, sorry. Fusel Jeremiad, a.k.a. at Disc Grinder on Twitter, says, at JR Southall, J R underscore Southall. Oh, yeah. Have you considered that Matt Smith sounds like Oliver Postgate and may have based his character on the young Professor Yaffle?
1: No, clearly. Oh, but I mean, Matt Smith's made for life, though. If he can carry on doing kids' programmes like that, I mean, Oliver Postgate. Oh,
0: yeah, but he's talking specifically about Professor Yaffle, and they only ever made, what was it, 13 episodes of Bagpuss? Oh, yeah, it was yeah, even yeah. That yeah. Many. Mm. I mean, he's not going to make his fortune from a remake of Bagpuss, is he? Do you know what? Remake of Bagpuss. Who would you cast as Bagpuss? Okay, we've got Matt Smith as Yaffle. Right. Who would you have? All Doctors. Who would you have as Bagpuss? Tom Baker. Okay, who would you have as... What's the ragdoll called? Uh, Madeline. Right, that would be David Tennant, obviously. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) let's (laughs) move on. Uh, We're here to talk about... We've got so many emails. Should we do another email before we talk yeah, about go the episode? On. Go on. Let's keep the listeners on hooks. <laughs> okay. David Carrington says, Hey all. He says, Hey all. Mark's not
1: been here for a while. No. And Lee's not here. Mark has got something to say this episode though, hasn't he? Was he? Yeah. Did he say something on Facebook? Oh, not to us though. Oh, no, no. Okay. So if people want to find out what Mark thought about, Oh, no, actually. No, that was private, wasn't it? We won't say that. Okay. Thinking about it. But we can. But if you private message me. (laughs) Or Simon,
0: actually. Don't message me. Message Simon. And Lee's not made it. Because we've convened at a bit of short notice Mm. because something else fell through this week. Mm. So something else that fell through that you may have been looking forward to if you knew what it was... But since I didn't tell anybody what it was, you probably aren't. No, I think you're you, you, you disappointed. No, it's going to happen in a fortnight instead. Oh, okay. Right. <clears throat> oh, yeah, it was just one of those things where, you know, last minute, mm. things couldn't happen. So, Simon and I, it's four days since uh, Kill the Moon went out. Mm. And so, we both saw it four days ago. And how many times have you watched it since? Just once, live. Oh, I you've watched not watched it, it any time since? No, not since. No, that's what I'm saying. So we've not, either of us, watched it since. No, 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 watched it
1: at transmission and that Do is. Do you it. want to know the
0: really annoying thing about when there's only two of us? Go on then. I don't get a chance to swig my tea. I don't really, talk enough. When Lee's here... Oh, it's not that you don't talk enough. It's that I like breaking in. What, I don't think that wasn't going to be a problem. <laughs> David Carrington. So we've only seen Kill the Moon once. So this, and this was four days ago. So this is going to be a slightly less on the nose review than normal. Aren't I it?
1: don't know. Well, we'll I talk about know. it
0: again when we've got Lee, right? Yeah, yeah. I think we've got quite a lot to get through, anyway. Mm. Ooh. So David Carrington says, Hey all, I've finally caught up on the past two Blue Box episodes and it's been good to hear you talking through this fantastic current series and the interesting new Doctor as he develops. I don't want to write a novella for JR's battered voice to read. I don't think he's got any problems about me talking to me, Frank. that like a battered Mars bar. Do I sound kind of... <laughs> yeah. Dusky and Scottish. <laughs> Fried in oil. <clears throat> but I did want to pick up on something he said in the review of Listen about Mr. Moff's West Wing stroke Aaron Sorkin influences. The mark of the West Wing Studio 60 newsroom, etc. You missed out sports night. But mm. that's never been released in this country, I don't think. So, I've never even heard of it. Well, it was what Aaron Sorkin did before the West Wing. Oh, right. Okay. It's like half hour episodes, well, 22 minutes, because it's American with the adverts. Mm. And it was just two series of about 25 episodes each set in the newsroom of a sports cast. OK. So it's a bit like the newsroom, mm. but mm. with sports instead. Mm. And it was more of a sitcom. OK. Slightly angled more towards the sitcom thing. Mm. <clears throat> anyway, the mark of the etc. is there in the whip-cracking dialogue, but there's also a nod in the Time Heist episode that JR missed, ending a hard day's work with noodles eaten out of cardboard boxes. No, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, that's what they all do in Gnar and Sorkin dramas. All that was needed was for the Doctor to look up at his staff and ask what's next, and the show could have smash cut to the final credits. <laughs> it's taken me a while, but I'm finally on board with Capaldi as the Doctor. He's irascible and difficult in a good way, and the relationship between him and Danny in the latest episode, particularly the he's an officer section in the TARDIS, seems to have brought a strong regular male character to the series. Danny is vying for the alpha male role in a way that Rory and Mickey, the last two other half-companions, haven't been able to. Mm. It's nice to see different dynamics at work, demonstrating that having strong female characters doesn't have to be at the expense of strong male counterparts. Finally, is anyone else looking forward to seeing the Doctor threatening Chris Addison as Seb if and when he finally gets to the nether sphere? I'm hoping for an extended, unspeakable tucker threat made to a whimpering Seb. Or maybe <laughs> not. Anyway, thanks again for the show, David. Mm. He's right, though. Mm. I've mentioned that in the last podcast, didn't I? Perhaps may have done about uh, Addison and Capaldi. Yes, you did, yeah. With yeah. the boots on the other feet, perhaps. Mm. Mm. Well, although as Addison is playing like the personal assistant to uh, Missy, it might actually be not quite so on the other foot after No, all. no, I
1: don't think so. Think so. but he's, he's absolutely on the ball. It's interesting mm. the the Capaldi thing. I he there's no denying that he is less commercial mm. than the last couple of doctors. I, I I was looking at um you know the adverts on when you go on certain websites and you see like the banners up the side, and obviously he's not got the physical attraction of the other ones. We've gone through all that and the series has gone through all that, but uh, from a commercial point of view. I don't think, you know, our kid's going to be wanting a Capaldi action figure. Well, I just way. got one yesterday. Yeah? Birthday swag. Oh, yeah, I mean, he looks great with his eyebrow. He's got a quirky eyebrow. Oh, he? no,
0: no, that's the regeneration one. Oh, is it? The one in his proper costume. He doesn't have the raised eyebrow. Yeah. So I'm going to have to go out and get the regeneration one as well now, aren't I? So I get the one with the eyebrow.
1: Yeah, yeah. But but then we went through the 70s, didn't we, in the 80s? Here's know, the it's... thing. <clears throat> When
0: Tennant was the Doctor, mm. you had Mickey. Mm. And Mickey didn't need to be eye candy because the Doctor was the eye candy. Mm. And to an extent when Eccleston was as well. So Mickey could be, well, he calls himself the Tin Dog in School Reunion, right? Yep, yep. What he's really saying there, in effect, is he's the comedy sidekick. K-9 was the comedy sidekick. Because mm. K-9, for as much as he'd occasionally solve problems and things like that, Canine was an excuse for a bit of banter between the Doctor and a robot dog, right? Yep, yep. Mickey, well, it wasn't banter, but Mickey was a fall guy. He was. He was the brunt of the jokes. So fast forward to Matt Smith, and Mm. then you've got Rory. Mm. And in that first series, Rory was the fall guy again. Because, again, he didn't need to be the distraction for the female viewers. Mm. He didn't need to be the attractive male, you know, central figure. And although Rory came into it more, he always kept that sort of distance. Yeah. I think, Mm. I don't think he ever, he became more of a, he never became an alpha male. No. no. He never became the sort of, he never quite became a sort of role model for the kids or pin up for the ladies or whatever. He did develop and he got a lot.
1: There was a lovely shift, wasn't there, from Team Amy to Team Rory, wasn't Mm. there, going on? Yeah, and I tell you what, I've seen a lot of criticism
0: of um, the way that the male characters are written. Why does it always need to be a sexually charged triangle? But I thought after Vampires of Venice, it never really was that. And while they did address that occasionally, where you'd have Rory wondering whether Amy was talking to the doctor or to him Mm. when she was saying something like, oh, a wonderful man fell out of the stars and stuff like that, I never felt... That that was sexually charged mm. between her and the doctor. I thought after that kiss at the end of the seduction scene at the end of Flesh and Stone. Yeah, I don't think there was any sexual tension between her and Matt Smith whatsoever.
1: No, no. I mean, it was put it kind of drew a line under it with the uh, <clears throat> yeah, with the pregnancy I, anyway. I, didn't I think it? that
0: was what he was there for to draw a line under it. Yeah, yeah.
1: And that's why the eleventh Doctor then
0: goes and picks up Rory and brings him aboard. And at the end of that series, they even end up getting married. Yeah. And the Doctor is never in the picture from that point. And in fact, the Doctor from that point is having this thing that I talked about last week as well with River Song, Mm. which I don't feel was consummated. No. But that's where the Doctor's attention in a romantic sense is uh, being drawn to, River Song. Yeah, yeah. So Rory and Amy, from that point, were a couple without that distraction, Mm. I think. And even though you had those occasional scenes where Rory would get a little bit worried, I don't think he was worried in a sexual fashion. No. When she was saying things like a wonderful man fell out of the stars, I think Rory was worried in a, am I good enough for her fashion? Yeah. Mm. In the same way as they're writing the storyline about Danny Pink. Is he good enough for Clara? Mm. 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 And on the subject of Clara, just before we get to Danny Pink... There was that scene in, I think it was the time of the Doctor, Mm -hmm. where the truth field and they both have to say something. I've addressed this before, actually, but I've seen this brought up again since. So I may as well address it again. They're in the truth field. And in order to demonstrate the truth field for a watching audience at home, a watching non-fan audience at home, just regular (laughs) viewers, you know, eight million regular viewers who've Mm who perhaps aren't quite as up to speed with the main fans as, (laughs) uh, you know, on science fiction terminology, if you mention the expression truth field, the average guy sitting in the chair at home is probably thinking to himself, what on earth are they talking about? Mm. So you have to demonstrate it. So each of the two characters has to reveal something within the truth field that they wouldn't ordinarily reveal. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> so I can't remember what it is the Doctor says, but it's something ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, something about his wig or something. I can't remember.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: That's right. But Amy says, and I fancy you. Clara says. "Ah, uh, Clara. Clara says to the Doctor, and I fancy you. Yeah. And so then sort of snaps herself out of it. And yeah. people have taken that to mean that whole 11th Doctor and Clara thing is yet again sexual tension between the Doctor and his companion. Yeah. There was no sexual tension whatsoever no. in any of the episodes, and even in that episode
1: there's no sexual tension whatsoever. You can fancy someone without it being any kind of sexual thing yeah, whatsoever absolutely. I've just finished would just watch the uh to give you an idea of when this has been recorded. I've just watched the final the great British Bake off Sue Perkins. I fancy the pants off that woman, but there's no obviously there's no sexual thing going on mm. whatsoever oh yeah, as yeah. in she wouldn't be interested anyway, you know but and the
0: fact is, the Doctor is, and yes, they've made a thing about Rose and the Tenth Doctor and all this kind of thing, yeah. the Doctor is an alien, right? Yeah. And so, and Clara, at the point where she admits this, I fancy him, mm. she's seen a lot more of the Doctor and his other bodies mm. and knows better than anybody else how old he is and all this kind of thing. When she says, I fancy him, what she means is he's an attractive man. And he's also not just an attractive man, but he's also a powerful man. Yes, yeah. uh, And a charismatic man. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to say he's somebody for whom there is a certain amount of attraction without it actually being something that she could or would. Yeah, he's not the object of her desires. No, absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, then we get to Peter Capaldi and Danny Pink. And again, this came up in The Caretaker, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Peter, because since we recorded the review of the caretaker, I've seen a lot more on Facebook and Twitter, and listened to podcasts and stuff. And again, it's this: is there some kind of sexual triangle going on here? And is the doctor having to show off for for Danny, and is Danny having to show off for the doctor? And are they both fighting over Clara? But (laughs) it's stated pretty clearly in that episode, Mm. and some of it's in throwaway comedy dialogue Mm. but it's actually stated out loud Mm. that for clara the doctor is a father figure absolutely yeah Yeah. and for danny yeah the doctor is somebody for whom he must meet the approval yeah and and whether you think the sexual politics of that is right whether you think it's right for danny to need to meet the approval of the father figure Mm. that's the dynamic that's going on between them Mm. danny And for all his saluting and having the argument. And this was all foreshadowed because every time we've seen Danny and Clara together in previous episodes, we've seen both Danny and Clara taking things that the other one said the wrong way, losing their temper and walking out of the room. Mm, mm. So it's not like this is something that was introduced into his character in this episode. Danny is somebody who is not on a violently short fuse but is likely not to be able to keep his temper, mm. particularly at moments of intense emotion. Like, for yeah. instance, the kind of emotion that you'd have on a first date.
2: Mm.
0: Or the kind of emotion that you're having when you're meeting the girlfriend's father. And to all intents and purposes, that's what the Doctor is. Yeah, yeah. So,
1: anyway, I've kind of been hogging this podcast. No, no, but that's really what well established, the thing between Danny and the Doctor. I mean, it's it's pretty damn obvious the whole thing about this <clears throat> seeking approval and yeah. It's even spelled out in the dialogue. It because is. All that some
0: of that dialogue is thrown away. Throw away funny dialogue. Should we do one more email because okay. we have as always got lots of emails and I'll save the ones about Kill the Moon to last but here's one from Ian Martin <clears throat> He says Oh, God, I'm just glancing this one over. And again, it's one of those where I think I probably should have read this before we got to the podcast. (laughs) Ian Martin says, let me expand, expound and exposit. Exposit. Is that something that squirrels do in hedges? (laughs) It's fascinating watching how season eight is working in different ways for different people. Stephen Schipansky just said he still thought Deep Breath might still be his favourite while it left me cold. J.R. and I agree on Moffat and the glories of Season 6, but certainly not on Time Heist. My two favourites this year are The Caretaker and Robot of Sherwood. I think because for me, Capaldi's Doctor works best when the script is funny, and when it's serious, like most of Into the Dalek was, for me, his character isn't clicking. The almost universal exception seems to be Listen, which everyone seems to like. And he's deadly serious in the teaser, but the what would you do was electrifying. From what I've heard in, from various podcasters, I'm quite close to agreeing most with Josh from last week's Blue Box podcast, although again, he loved Time Heist and I thought it was just filler. We should work out a matrix of who likes what so that fans can identify their leanings and state their who politics easily. <laughs> they could be Joshist, Rev Arential. Mm. Or Far south all. <laughs> <clears throat> and... Oh, by the way, Ian carries on, it looks like there are giant spiders in Kill the Moon. If any listeners like a giant spider or two, can I point them towards my Winter Hill series of SF adventure stories on Amazon? 99p in the Kindle store. <laughs> Is he advertising himself on our podcast? Yeah, and why not? That's outrageous. Uh, just an aside regarding Did your... Did you say that's outrageous? Yeah, it was a... Yeah. oh right you said it on purpose no it was
1: an accident oh yeah it's quite good quite like that someone being an outrageous
0: okay i'll try and remember that
1: yeah <laughs> it's like
0: when i say impressionations
1: yeah fantastic yeah
0: uh finally ian says just as an aside regarding your she's the matrix theory what if missy was expecting the doctor as he was heading for the promised land until the time lords intervened when it became clear things had changed she began collecting people close to him, not exactly the matrix, but not a million miles away. It's interesting, yeah.
1: I yeah, it is. I don't. I don't quite see the logic as why they would collect other people, but this idea that he was
0: well, she seems due to, me, to appear somewhere. She seems to me to be collecting people around where the doctor is. Mm. Either that, or we're just seeing those people yeah. because I mean, if it was heaven, right? Mm. actual heaven, Mm. everybody would be going there, right? Yeah, they would. Yeah, Or pretty much. Mm -hmm. But everybody would pretty much be going there, but we'd only see the ones that are relevant to the story we're watching. Mm. So we don't know that she's only collecting people
1: close. And when I say close, I mean geographically. You'll like it, won't you, if if there's any kind of homage to matter of life and death in it? Ah, there's more likely to be an homage to... Oh, what's that... um,
0: Magic brooks film
1: oh oh not having to guy... wait
0: no 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 that was um Warren Beatty. yeah no the guy who was in taxi driver had a small part in taxi driver as an early role oh something brooks what's his first name albert brooks right he did a film he, a few years later um because he is a Very funny man. Mm. But I think he's one of those people who's kind of intellectually funny Mm. and kind of the limelight's kind of passed over him. Mm. Anyway, he did a film in the early 80s where he went to heaven and it was like a Woody Allen-esque comedy in heaven, basically. Mm. I can't remember what it was called. Just Like Heaven or something like that. It wasn't Mm. Just Like Heaven, but something like that. Sounds like a TV movie. But the heaven in that film was almost exactly the same as the heaven we've seen in The Nether Sphere. Mm -hmm big white rooms and sort of gardens and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm. All right. Speaking of which, I suppose we'd better talk about Kill the Moon. I know. Okay. Without getting into all the weird crap. <laughs> did you enjoy it?
1: Yeah, I did. How much? Quite a lot. It's, it's, yeah. If, if you were talking, if you were going to talk to me immediately after watching, I'd say, yeah, I really quite enjoyed that. But you're not thinking Classic.
0: No. No. I thought there was a lot to enjoy in it. It was funny. It was like an episode of two halves. Mm, mm. Up to the point where you find out... Well, this was the thing. As I was watching it, and when I watch things these days, you can't just sit back and relax because I've got to write a review within an hour afterwards. (laughs) As I'm watching it, for the first 20 minutes, I'm thinking... Because obviously he was told to Hinchcliffe the shit out of it by Stephen Moffat, right? out of the first half. Oh, was he? Oh, did you not heard this quote? No, no, no. Alright, well you know the halfway point is the point where they find out that the movie's in Talk to me about the writer. Peter Harness. Okay, what, what's his track record? He did the English version of Wallander with okay. Kenneth Branagh. Right. And oh, I can't remember. He has done other things. I can't remember what they were. That was
1: great, actually. Yes, oh, it right. was. It oh, really was really good. good. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. usually watch that sort of thing, but I was sucked into that. Oh, yeah. Mm. No,
0: that was exceptional. Um... So he comes from quite a, and that was quite a classy bit of telly, right? Mm, mm. So, and it's a thing, I suppose, if you bring in somebody like Gareth Roberts, Mm. right? we all know Gareth Roberts' track history on Doctor Who, Mm. but if you forget about his track history on Doctor Who, his track record on Doctor Who, sorry, and just look at what else he's done on the telly, And I think he worked on things like Born and Bred or Casualty and stuff like that. Mm. But you wouldn't be expecting necessarily for him to do something deadly serious and quite. But you look at the first 20 minutes of Kill the Moon, Wallander, I mean, obviously that is a lot more serious because it's that kind of a program. Mm. But it's also glacially slow Mm. and Mm. the dialogue's quite sparse. You look at the first 20 minutes of Kill the Moon, Mm. it's kind of... But it's not glacially slow. (laughs) It's actually pretty damn speedy because they get through an awful lot in the first 20 minutes. Yeah. But it feels slow because the dialogue's paired back Mm. and the characterization of the new characters who've come in, the three astronauts, is very much paired back. So you can see his roots in Wallander. Well, not necessarily his roots in Wallander, but you can draw the line between Wallander and uh, Kill the Moon. Mm. So... I'm sitting watching the first 20 minutes, I'm thinking, first of all, I'm thinking, blimey, they're getting through an awful lot of stuff here, but they're getting through it in very little dialogue. Mm. Things are just happening. Yes. Apart yeah. from the occasional scene, like the bit where the Doctor tests the gravity by jumping around. Yes. Yeah. Which was hilarious, by yeah. the way. Yeah, very
1: good. Yeah, and strangely, in contrast to, um, you know, I picked up on the exposition in Time Heist. I didn't, yeah. I didn't feel like any of that was going on kill the moon and yeah
0: it was all there it was, it exactly was all saying. there yeah
1: it reminded me in that respect of
0: um the first episode of the satan pit um the impossible planet yeah yeah because the first that that episode is all exposition for about 40 minutes mm. and yeah because other things are going on while well, the expositions happening yeah,
1: you're distracted from the fact that people are just telling each other things. Yeah, and they kind of yeah, the, the information's coming forth at natural moments, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah,
0: and what you really need there is a decent director, because you can write it as well as you like, but if the director doesn't get what you're doing, he's not going to film what you're doing. He's just going to film what's on the page. Yeah, and you've got to see beyond the page to understand that that's what's going on. Yeah, so you need the director to be on board. And this was was it Paul Williams' okay, who did this one? It's really well directed, mm. and the director knew exactly what was going on, and he he shot what was going on. <laughs> he met and so first twenty minutes odd. I thought it was a very odd tone to the first twenty minutes with the sparse dialogue, mm. but the considerable amount of action and all the exposition, all of that thrown in together. I thought it was an odd first twenty minutes, and I thought, well, we knew. We knew going in from the previews in places like Doctor Who magazine and the Radio Times that halfway through the episode, there was going to be a point at which we found out what was happening. that mm. uh, the second half of the episode would depend on, well, to use an expression I've been using in this series, of whether our expectations were met successfully. Yeah. yeah, right. Whether we thought what was going on was okay. And that was pretty much a jump the shark moment for some people. Mm. Mm. And then the other thing was we also knew something serious was going to happen at the end of the episode. Mm. So some of the people I've heard talking about it really enjoyed the first 20 minutes and absolutely hated the second. Mm. And some people, it was the other way around, really enjoyed the first 20 minutes that really hated the first 20 minutes and really enjoyed what happened after you found out the moon was an egg. Mm. So I guess we've got to talk about the moon being an egg.
1: (laughs) We have to. Yeah. I mean, uh, one thing I will say about that first 20 minutes, though, God, it was shocking. I loved it. I saw some people thought the moon th- looked a bit odd, and they were saying, oh, it it didn't look as uh, damaged as it should, considering what's going on and that sort of thing. But I just thought the grading and everything, it did have a feeling about it that I don't think any other Doctor Who episode had. Certainly the the, the, the lunar landscape stuff was oh, just gorgeous. you believed they were on the moon.
0: Absolutely, yeah. didn't you? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah, but not just that. From a design point of view... The red dots on the spiders, when that was showing through, because she had all that grey. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that took some. That that was a really clever thing to do, to even from a colour point of view. Not to pick spiders, a, Simon. Bacteria. Bacteria. <laughs> well, yeah. But yeah, to have the red glow and and the grey, and oh, it was just gorgeous, gorgeous oh, yeah. to look at. Oh yeah, absolutely right. Mm. Right, we'll talk about that moon being an egg
0: in a minute. Okay. The spiders. Yes. The bacteria. Yeah. Here's another, uh, I think this is actually in one of her emails because I scanned through them as I'm printing them off. Mm. But we address it now because there's a couple of people have asked this. Why would there be spiders? You know, why would the bacteria be spiders? Mm. And is that a logical flaw?
1: Are we back to the RCD thing of making the aliens? look like things we recognize
0: no that's not what i was talking about really i was talking about the fact that if they're bacteria Mm. most people would think of bacteria as being you know creatures with far fewer cells so they'd be much less sophisticated yeah Mm. you know in terms of their physical makeup Mm. but if you consider and we'll come back to the moon's an egg in a minute if you consider this is an egg the size of the moon But it's still made up of atoms, the same size of the atoms that make up you and I. And it's still made of atoms the same size as atoms that make up spiders and flies and beetles. Mm. And it's still made up of atoms the same size as the atoms that make up bacteria and viruses and so on. And So if you have something that is a bacteria, but that is the size of a dog, Mm. it is going to be as sophisticated a creature as a dog. Okay. I mean, and you've seen blown up pictures of microscopic creatures. Yeah. And they're still pretty complicated creatures. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Not nearly as complicated as you and I are. No. But nevertheless, a lot more complicated than you'd imagine. And so if you had bacteria that were the same size as dogs or whatever,
1: chances are they would be quite sophisticated creatures. Mm-hmm. And, and we also don't know the history of this thing, how it got well, there yeah. in the first place. So the bacteria could have developed somewhere else. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, and two more things on that
0: point. Why would they look like spiders? Because they're on a surface of a planetoid, a satellite. Mm. It's got no atmosphere, and very little gravity. So the spider shape makes sense if you're going to be existing on that kind of... Yeah. And the other thing yeah. is, why they like spiders? Why is the nucleus of the virus like a prawn in The Invisible Enemy? Because it's Doctor Who, and they're also there to scare the kids. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. Right? Exactly, yeah. So
0: they, they could have made an episode where their bacteria looked like bacteria, but it wouldn't have worked nearly I as know, well. I know, I and... know. And people sometimes seem to forget when they're watching Doctor Who that it does have to appeal to the kids as well. Yeah. And the people at home who are not Doctor Who fans, who don't go on the forums and who don't read the magazine, who just want to watch something a bit exciting and a bit mad on a Saturday night, and they see giant spiders on the moon, and they think, hey, giant Mm. spiders on the moon. Mm. So why not? Yep. Simon, serious question. Yes. Could the moon actually be an egg for a creature the size of a planet? I don't know. Quite. In the Doctor Who universe, yeah, could the moon be an egg for yes, a creature the size absolutely. of a planet? Yeah. Well, we've seen... Going back to the classic series, mm. we've seen the power of Crawl, Mm-hmm. We've seen the creature from the pit. Mm-hmm. We have seen other things where you also have enormous creatures, not in quite the same way, or you have... Um, stories like Planet of Evil, where the planet itself almost seems to develop. Mm. And then in the new series, you have 42, where mm. the sun, not our sun, but a sun, is a living creature. Yeah. And you Doctor's have. Doctor's wife? I was just about to. That was the very next thing I was oh, going to was mention. <laughs> Doctor's wife. That's the more I could think of. Yeah. Whether an anato- asteroid or planetoid in that is a living creature. Yeah. Mm, there's nothing in the Doctor Who canon to mm. suggest that the moon couldn't be an egg. No, physically, mm. an egg. Should the moon have been an egg?
1: What in a in a in a writing context? Well, yeah, <sighs> I think it's a brave thing. Brave, brave thing, and slightly yeah. mad. Yes.
0: And I think there's plenty of scope for Slightly Mad yep. and Doctor yep. Who. Mm. You go back to the edge of destruction, you've got Slightly Mad. And especially when you look at things like Celestial Toymaker Pirate, and Mind Robber. Uh,
1: Pirate Planet. Pirate Planet, yeah. Where they, and uh, I love that. I adore oh, that yeah. story for that very reason.
0: But what kind of sense does that make? It doesn't. No. I mean, if you are going to boil down the science of anything. Right. Th- this is my usual example that I give. Teleport. mm right in order to teleport what you do presumably i mean you, you break down the individual atoms in a being and send them individually through a wormhole and reassemble them at the other side mm. but if you break down the individual atoms in a being you kill that person yeah and when you reassemble them at the other side it should just be a dead body or probably it should be mush like the milk creatures in the
1: rebel or or flesh. a essentially a clone of that person yeah. Who isn't aware that the other has person the, has died. No, who yeah. has the memories of the original person, yeah. but isn't that actual yeah. person. Which brings to yeah the, the argument can't. about, is there such a thing as a soul? Yeah.
2: Mm.
0: But essentially, if you break down the science in any of these things, yeah,
1: it's all wonky. Yeah. I know. Well, even Star Trek, they say about the teleport, they say you need a hard drive the size of a planet or something to store all the information in a human body. So, yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Oh. So the big question is then, is... Oh, something's buzzing, but it's not me. Actually.
1: Oh, it's my phone over here.
0: Oh, okay. So the big <laughs> question, therefore, is... With the moon being an egg, mm. that's slightly mad idea, and in the Doctor Who universe, it's kind of not implausible. And I'm not going to say it's plausible, because I don't think it's plausible, but it's not implausible in the Doctor Who universe because it has precedence. So... In order to do that idea and get away with it, you have to make it worth it. Does he make it worth it? Yes. Right. Do you want to expand on that? Because I've got several things to say about whether he makes it worth it. And some of them are
1: slightly mad as well, probably. In as much as there is an emotional payoff. Right, there is. In how it steers the characters. Absolutely. Um... Which I suppose you could have
0: done without it being an egg. You could have. But, you know, sometimes in storytelling, in order to take the characters into a very emotional place, whether that's a very dark emotional place or a very happy emotional place, you sometimes have to throw in something slightly mad that that kind of jump-starts the change in the characters. Mm. Because if you have the characters suddenly sort of going off the emotional deep end one way or the other without having seen something that's quite significant enough to have caused it. You don't believe in the characters anymore Mm. because you're just thinking, well, that came out of nowhere. Mm. Uh, We've never seen anything in those people that would cause that kind of a reaction. Mm. The moon being an egg, that is huge. (laughs) That is enormous. Yeah. Yeah. So as a metaphor... Or oh, I love that word, gonna, metaphor. But that, but that's the thing. We'll come to that later, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, when you're writing, yeah. and you may not do this even consciously, because I think the best writers are the writers who do this by instinct. They don't sit down and think, right, I need a metaphor, what can I use? They sit down and they write a story, and it's only afterwards that they, or you, or the critics, or whoever... Realises quite what they've done. Mm. And actually, Christopher Bryan posted something on my Facebook timeline, Mm. which said exactly the same thing. He said the great poetry. The great poetry is poetry where you can read so much meaning into it that probably the writer never even put in intentionally. No, no, no. But it's still there to be found. Yes. Well, let's go back to Into the Dalek because... Uh, This is what I think Phil Ford did with Into the Dalek, whether deliberately or not. Mm. But he has made that story a story about the nurture versus nature Mm. debate. Mm. Because naturally, a Dalek is not an evil creature. Mm. It has to be made into an evil creature by having several of its synapses turned off, several of its memories turned off, so that it doesn't know anything else but evil. Mm. So that story, whether Phil Ford ever actually meant it to be that or not, but the whole story revolves around the fact that the Dalek has been made to be an evil creature. And the argument that Clara makes when she says to the Doctor, no, the thing that we found out today is that you can have a good Dalek. Mm. And then she proves it by turning those synapses, turning those memories, whatever, back on, and the Dalek becomes good again. Mm. So he has made that story about that, whether he meant to or not. Mm. Now, Peter Harner's... To my mind, and there have been a lot of theories about what the kill the moon is really about, but I'm going to take another swig of tea before I get into this.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, I think I've got some whiskey somewhere. Mm. right
0: tea swigged eggnog <laughs> Peter Harness has written a story in which the central idea that everything else comes out of is. Should you interfere with nature? Okay. Because here is a natural process taking place in our sky. And whatever becomes of everything around it after that natural process, Mm. that process, if it was unaffected by science or reason or anything surrounding nature, if it was left entirely natural, that process would have gone forward and the results of that process would be either beneficial in the long term or in the short term, in one way or another. Mm. Now, to put what I mean in terms of what we see, the moon is in the sky.
2: Mm.
0: If mankind hasn't developed enough by the time the moon is set to hatch, by the time it does hatch, then mankind can't send a spaceship up to the moon and doesn't have a choice in whether they destroy it and stop it from hatching Mm. or whether they allow it to go forwards.
2: Mm.
0: Nature, and when I say nature, I don't mean like Mother Nature. I mean just a natural process has put that egg in our sky. Now, mankind can see it and knows what's happening and mankind brings reason to this Mm. and mankind says if this egg hatches there's every chance we'll get destroyed Mm. and yes it's true sometimes if uh, and here's an example from the Doctor Who universe but if the moon's arrival in the first place is what killed off the dinosaurs then yes potentially mankind has every reason to worry that the hatching of the egg will see mankind destroyed and although life in some form would continue to exist on the earth, it won't be man. Mm. So man decides to intervene. But, mm, <laughs> swigs tea again, mm. but the way nature works is not destructive.
1: No. Obviously, there
0: are destructive tendencies in nature, otherwise nobody would ever get to eat. Mm. But nature, generally speaking, and again, when I say nature, I don't mean like, some cuddly mother nature thing. I mean, just the way things happen when they're not being affected by reason or science. But generally, the way things happen don't happen destructively. And obviously, there are examples to the contrary. So what Peter Harness is really writing here, whether he intends to or not, is a debate about whether you should interfere with this process that's taking place in the sky naturally, Mm. or whether you should trust it to nature that nature is making the best decision. Obviously, not consciously, Mm. but unconsciously, whether the thing that is happening in the sky is going to be, in the bigger picture, beneficial or not. Mm. So, the big argument about whether they should blow it up and Clara's decision to make about whether they should blow it up Mm. becomes a part of this whole, and it's nature versus science, I guess. It's the debate between nature versus science. Will allowing the egg to hatch naturally be beneficial or detrimental to mankind? Mm. And the doctor takes himself out of this argument. Mm. And we find out at the end that he doesn't know. No. But he just trusts to nature. And he also trusts to Clara to make the right decision, knowing that Lundvik isn't going to... and probably suspecting that mankind isn't going to, because when you ask a species to make the decision, they're not looking at the bigger picture. They're only looking at their place in that picture. Now, it could be that had that egg hatched, it could have destroyed all of mankind and most of life on planet Earth, but it doesn't. And I think what the episode is really saying, not any of the things that, Other people have been saying that the episode is saying. But I think what the episode is really saying is that, metaphorically speaking, nature evolution will always be beneficial in terms of the greater picture. Mm. Mm. And so it could have gone the other way. Mankind could have been destroyed. But I think the Doctor realised that mankind couldn't be destroyed because mankind wasn't destroyed in the future. But that's kind of irrelevant to the argument. Yeah, yeah. The main point here was that Clara had to have the vision to see that what was happening in the sky was a good thing. Yeah. Rather than a bad it was thing. A natural occurrence. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's really not black and white. No. Because these things aren't black and white. No. And because no. nature can be hideously destructive when it wants to mm-hmm. be. But generally speaking, the hideously destructive things are the sort of once in- a lifetime things or they're in so far in the minority. Mm. You know what I mean the The tornadoes that sweep through America, that's three out of three hundred and sixty five days or whatever. You know a disaster mm. is not the majority uh thing that happens. Oh, I can't think of my words, but you know what I'm saying. Mm. So and this episode falls down. Oh, it pardon me, doesn't give easy answers, but no. it definitely falls down on one side of the debate because it has to have a resolution in the episode. And the resolution is the egg hatches, nobody gets harmed, everything goes on as before, and the creature that hatches out of the egg even lays an egg to replace itself. And... The moment it lays the egg to replace itself, and people have said, oh, that's ridiculous. And yes, it is ridiculous, but the nice thing about that is the fact that it lays an egg afterwards is, metaphorically speaking,
1: a reward to humankind for not pressing the button. Yeah, yeah. And and as a symbolic thing of the cyclic nature. Yes. Of
0: nature. Yes. Yes. So the whole thing is really deep it is and whether he actually very positive as well yeah oh yeah yeah very very positive yeah and whether he actually meant it to be that deep Mm. so even if he didn't mean it consciously somewhere in his subconscious all those ideas had to come from somewhere you know you don't write things in isolation i've said this before even if you don't intend for your ideas to necessarily be what they are having you know The fact that they must have come from somewhere is what turned them into what they are. Mm. So he must have been thinking, he he must have been thinking about some of this stuff, even if not all of it.
1: Mm. 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 But yeah, it's it's people's perception on these things, isn't it? It's like you say, it is like poetry. And I, I can't honestly believe that the guy was writing this story to that level. No, he probably wasn't. But... Writing it very instinctively. I mean, I was thinking that the writing process was possibly right. This is Doctor Who. What can I? How can I put the Earth under threat? And how can I mix with that some kind of ethical, difficult decision that's got to be made? Something which possibly he was told has to really stick the knife between the Doctor and Clara.
0: Yeah, he's probably been told that. Yeah. Because Moffat would definitely have said that. But the rest of it comes out of not just his subconscious, but also comes out of him having absorbed Doctor Who.
2: Because
0: mm. especially if you look back, perhaps more so at the Russell T Davis ones. So well I think it's there in the Moffat ones as well, there quite often is an ethical dilemma. Mm. And even episodes like The Doctor's Daughter have mm. a sort of ethical dilemma right at their very heart. Mm. Mm. So I think even if you're not necessarily meaning to, you can put an ethical dilemma in just because you're writing Doctor Who mm. and just because that flows naturally out of the pen when you have your mind in that frame. Mm. right? <clears throat> We're going to have to talk through some of the other things that people thought about that as well. <laughs> i tell you what, mm. before we carry on, shall we go through the rest of the emails? Because people have brought points up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we might as well get the points that other people have brought up. We have got, hang on, I... Oh, yes. We've got Miles North got... And Kieran Hyman. I think I'm going to go to Miles first and come back to Kieran afterwards. Oh, but Sean M. Vale wrote a very short one. He says, I think Danny Pink is an emotionally manipulative prick. Lots of mind games with Clara preying on her weaknesses. And that ultimatum he gave Clara at the end of The Caretaker really pissed me off. What about the secrets he obviously has? Same rules for him? Yep. Okay, let's talk about that for a minute before
1: we come back to Kill the Moon, because there's so
0: much to say about Kill the Moon. We can get back into it in yeah. a moment.
1: Well, <clears throat> very human. It's very real. That's what I was going to say. We all do it. We all play mind games, even with the people who say, well, I don't play mind games. And again... Just by saying that, you're you, playing a mind game.
0: And again, you do it subconsciously without even realising yeah. what you're doing. Yep. Yeah. And just because you've got secrets... Doesn't mean to say you can't be pissed off with somebody else for having secrets, right? Mm. In fact, if you've got secrets yourself, probably makes you even more pissed off because it makes you understand why they're keeping secrets from you, yeah. and makes you even more determined that that shouldn't be the case. Mm. Mm. It's, I think it's very realistic. Yeah, I, think, I do. I do. I think he's
1: he's quite possibly one of the most realistic characters we've had in Doctor <sighs> Who
0: ever. Yeah, yeah, in the entire fifty-one years, mm. probably is, if mm. not the most realistic. Yeah. Which is quite odd that people seem to be, oh, but I didn't like it when that happens. Yeah, yeah. Which, well, I'd be interested to hear
1: reactions from um, people who've been in the army, the soldiers. I think I've read one sort of negative reaction about him. I can't think what it is. I'll have a think about that. Actually, it'd be more negative to say, why is Doctor Who and the
0: Doctor as a character targeting soldiers? Because there must be soldiers watching and soldiers' kids watching, mm. which seems very strange. I think he's very positive in that respect. Well, in one way, it's odd and not good to see the Doctor being down on soldiers. Yes. But the positive thing about it is that you're seeing a very positive role model in Danny Pink. Incredibly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, who's kind of saying, yeah, okay, he might have this problem. But actually, what we're seeing demonstrated on screen, as opposed to just talk about, mm. is how positive these people can be. Yeah. Absolutely. So, And the other thing about the ultimatum he gives, because remember he says at the end of the caretaker, care, if he ever pushes you too far, I want you to tell me, or we're done. Mm. And people are saying, well, that's a real ultimatum. That is just sort of a normal thing in a relationship. Mm. Mm. If there's something going on in a relationship that is exclusive to one of the people in the relationship... And that excludes the other person in the relationship, Mm. then the other person in that relationship may be able to live with it, but only to a certain point. That there there would come a point at where the person who is excluding excludes beyond which any reparation could be made. Mm. Mm. So that ultimatum is, in effect, not really an ultimatum, but just an attempt to build a bond. Yes, where potentially a bridge could be burned. Mm, mm. Absolutely, yeah, mm. yeah. And it felt very, it felt very natural to me, mm, mm. and it felt very reasonable to me as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Miles. Where's Lee? <laughs> Miles Northcott starts off his email. What up, bitches? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> When this season's episode titles were released and we saw that this one was called Kill the Moon, I did wonder how an inanimate object could be killed. What I didn't realise was that the moon was an egg, which took a bit of mental adjustment to sit happily in my head, but it's okay, I'm over it now. Mm. Over. Oh. (sighs) In some ways, this new egg-stroke-moon idea fits better with the Silurians' original theory of a small planetoid coming into the Earth's orbit, which then clearly got poached and stayed with us from that point until 2049. <laughs> the interesting element of Kill the Moon was the Doctor's inaction forcing Clara and Lundvik to decide the satellite's fate. This is easily explained by the Doctor's dislike of soldiers but clear love of eggs. Mm. Obviously, once it became apparent on Earth what the problem was, a unit was scrambled to go and blow it up, as you do. Sounds a bit of a hard-boiled idea to me, he says. Honestly, the internet's been full of these, hasn't it? it? (laughs) Of course, the Doctor was always going to return to rescue Clara, Courtney and Lundwick. We haven't even mentioned Courtney.
1: No, no, God.
0: Okay, we'll try and come back to her. Mm. But his perceived treatment of his friend and her extreme reaction to it left him with egg on his face, Mm. it seems. Keep it up, Miles. We're going. Ironically, he says, for a story which evokes so many puns, this was by far the most serious episode since the show returned, and I do think it went a bit too far. Not that this affected the storyline at all. He says it went a bit too far in how serious it was, but to balance that, the moon was an egg. Mm. (laughs) but i missed the banter and the sparkling dialogue which has made this season so memorable thus far that scene where he's jumping about that there's some great banter in that Yeah, yeah it wasn't completely absent no that aside though and excusing the slightly dodgy effect of exiting the shuttle the episode looked absolutely stunning the setting of lanzarote was used quite brilliantly The spider stroke germs were really unnerving and the cracking of the egg shell, breaking up of the moon's surface, was tense and exciting. The cast were all really on top of their games, with yet again Jenna and Peter shining brightest. And how how nice was it to see Tony Asoba again? Yep. Yep. Even though he had five lines or something. (laughs) We were told that this was a game changer and that looks to be the Doctor and Clara's relationship with Danny almost acting as a counsellor to his girlfriend at the end of the episode. Obviously, Clara remains in the show until at least Christmas, so how this situation develops will be fascinating. Will the Doctor mellow? Will Clara forgive him? How will Missy and the whole Heaven arc fit into the mix? Overall, I really enjoyed the story, although as mentioned, I wished we'd kept more of the banter. Whether it was that which left me feeling like there was something missing or whether it was the whole moon being an egg thing, I'm not sure. But this one will go down as a key episode in the show's history, I think, being one which I think most will generally love, but which those who fail to suspend their disbelief may struggle with from a story perspective. Eight out of ten again. Cracking story. (laughs) Uh, Now bring on Frank Skinner and his mummy and let's hope they don't over-egg the pudding next week. Catch you earlier, M. (laughs) <laughs> and then he sent another email to apologise for all the egg puns mm. and then he sent me a third email <clears throat> another thought wasn't it a tad ironic that Hermione Norris's character was called Lundvik or should I say Lundvik I was Ludwig. thinking that,
1: I thought that Yep.
0: <laughs> just listened to the last podcast and I have to agree with you JR I should have said plot rather than story valid point anyway, this was the funny bit mm. regarding the previous podcast the time heist one mm. he's talking about I downloaded it three times in total as I was sure there was a problem with it as it started with you and Josh saying goodbye. (laughs) Uh. Timey-wimey doesn't work so well on podcasts, obviously. When I actually carried on listening, I realised what you'd done, you sod. (laughs) Lol. Right, and that's Miles.
1: What are you doing using people's download limits?
0: Did you listen to the Time Heist
1: podcast? I haven't yet,
0: though. Oh, well, because it was about Time Heist, which is a heist which has got a time travel element I started the podcast with us saying goodbye and ended it with us saying hello brilliant We're well, not that brilliant obviously <laughs> <laughs> alright <clears throat> did he bring up any points there about this episode that we need to get into I don't know, Courtney.
1: Uh, well all the puns but he can be excused
0: Kieran brings up loads so we'll come to his in a minute but Courtney Simon, Courtney, Courtney
1: yeah, I mean not as irritating as she could have been Worked quite well, I thought, but but but, she was probably the one element I thought she was really good in it. Yeah, but
0: her character was probably the one element that I was kind of thinking, not really sure she can have a place in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because the decision was left to Clara, Mm. and but I suppose to a slight degree, when Clara has the decision to make, Mm. you've got Lundvik, bad cop, and. um, Courtney, good cop. Yeah. But you don't really need that because Clara's good cop already. Yeah. So, really, that scene was about whether Lundvik could persuade her to press the button or not. Mm, mm. Or vice versa, whether Clara could persuade Lundvik not to. Mm. So, kind of a bit odd.
1: Was it I a mean, three generation thing? Maybe that was the idea. Well, not
0: sure. You know, it seemed to me like because everything else in. And I've said this before, the the plot has to flow naturally out of the story, right? Mm. And it seemed to me that everything else in there did. The whole idea mm. of the moon being an egg, everything building up, it's not like they said, oh, we'll have giant spiders on the moon. What can you do with that, Peter? Mm. It felt like, and it probably wasn't the case, but it felt like he came up with the idea that the moon was an egg and everything else was like, right, and so what would be the next logical thing? Mm. And obviously, I don't actually think that was the case, but he did it well enough that he could persuade you of that, to my mind. Yeah. Mm. But Courtney was the one element that didn't feel a natural fit. In some ways, in some ways, it was very worthwhile having her there because yeah. a lot of the stuff at the start of the episode you could have, and the banter is a good example of what banter you did have. Mm. But also, you got to see something that Clara would perhaps have taken as second nature.
2: Mm.
0: Kind of from a slightly more wide-eyed perspective. And I think they did the moon so well that if Clara and the Doctor had both taken it for granted, it would have lost some of its luster. Yep. yep. But I thought she was very good. Ellis George, who plays her. Mm. Yeah, no, I did. They... Apart from Nightmare and Silver, they found some exceptional child actors mm, or absolutely. younger actors because she's probably 17 or something. Yeah,
1: yeah. Because for some reason, as I said um the last podcast I did, I saw her in the trailer for it. and uh, I didn't even realise it was the same person. <coughs> well, no, it looked like an older version of her. She looked taller. Yeah, and the hair, of course, being so
0: different. Yeah, yeah. But being in the space suit kind of gave her a completely different... I like, I
1: like the way he's got his supply of those orange suits now. Because then they all, they all came from um, the Satan pit, didn't they? Yeah. Or his original one. I love the fact he kept getting it out. He'd nicked it. Well, yeah. But now but it's maybe, more
0: Well, we've seen the room in the TARDIS that makes things. Maybe it just replicated the one he uh, brought back at the end of that story or something. Yeah. Or maybe it just looked into his mind and said, Oh, he likes this orange spacesuit. Let's make some more. <laughs> I don't know. Hard to say. Mm. Let's get into Kieran's before we get back to... Uh, And then we'll come back to some of the other things that have been said about Kill the Moon, because I think it's worth talking about Mm. what other people have been saying about Kill the Moon, because there has been a huge amount of debate about this episode. Yeah. Mm. So, Kieran says, Hello, the Blue Box podcast. First off, I agree that the Doctor never loved River, and I hope she doesn't return as a regular, but maybe a last hurrah to see what she's like with Capaldi. You know, on that point, that episode, um, name of the Doctor, very obviously, and especially with that kiss at the end and the way he says goodbye at the end, that seemed to me very obviously that Stephen Moffat was intending not to use River Song again after mm, that. Yeah. But having said that, because of the way their story works, you could bring her back if you thought there was a good enough reason
1: to. It was nice the way um River was dropped in the conversation, wasn't she, by... By the doctor and the caretaker, yeah, yeah, and that was nice. It was nice in as much as it wasn't like you know they just drawn a line and all of a sudden she wasn't mentioned anymore. Even Capaldi's doctor's mentioning her. So, I suppose one
0: valid reason to bring her back would be to see how she is with Peter Capaldi's doctor. Yeah, Mm. and if you could find a story that made it seem worth it as well, that would be two good reasons. And I suppose if you did do that. What you have in the name of the Doctor is the last time River Song sees Matt Smith's Doctor. Mm. Which in a way still works. But that episode just seems to me to be such a final full stop on the relationship between the two characters. Yeah, from the storytelling point of view, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, Kieran says, But now to Let's Kill the Moon. I'm not entirely sure what it was supposed to be about, and I have some minor points of interest and or general confusion. Okay, Simon, he's bullet-pointed this. Should okay. we go through them? Yeah, go on. Could somebody explain why those spiders
1: exist? Uh, because bacteria exist around all living organisms. There's one question there, though, I
0: suppose, and mm-hmm. my scientific knowledge isn't up to it, because the outside of the moon is in a vacuum. There's mm-hmm. no atmosphere on the moon at all, is there? No. So would you be able to have bacteria? I don't know. Well, it depends even... how those bacteria... But then again, at the end of the episode, we see the dragon flying off, space dragon. Is that actually mentioned in the episode that it's a space dragon, or is that just what people are calling it? Because everybody seems to be calling they it that. They did look a dragon. Right. At the end of the episode, <laughs> the space dragon flies off into the vacuum of space, right? Yeah. So in the Doctor Who universe, creatures can exist in a vacuum. Yes so space whales and it follows therefore that the bacteria can also exist in a vacuum yep so no logic broken there
1: no no
0: all right let's go on to the next bullet point <clears throat> well this one's fair enough i think if this moon mission is so important why has it been left up to three rather useless astronauts why not send in
1: unit well, they do so are the last three astronauts don't they
0: yeah they do But you have to say... It's not explained. No, I think, I think that that... Well, it is taking place at much the same time as Seeds of Death, I suppose, where um, T-MAT has replaced space travel. Yes. And in that story as well, there's a big point of nobody can fly rockets anymore. No, yeah, yeah, of course. So this is happening in that same universe. I I rather think he wrote that plot point in in order that he could have three older astronauts so that he could make play with that in the dialogue and the characterization. Yeah. And also because when it comes down to it, at the end of the story, when it comes to making that decision, you want somebody a bit more seasoned. And if you'd have had some sort of 30-year-old American jog, that decision wouldn't have carried carried nearly as much weight. Mm Mm-hmm. When I say American, that's really Americanist of me. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it would be naturally, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Did they really have to go all the way to Lanzarote to film that one scene and make a big issue of, oh, it must be Sarn from Planet of Fire? Now, he's saying two things here. They made a big thing of the fact that they went to Lanzarote mm. and kind of deliberately deceived Phantom into thinking it was a sequel to Planet of Fire. As a joke, pretty much. Mm. Fair enough. But he does say, did they have to go all the way to Lanzarote to film that one scene? But actually, they filmed loads in Lanzarote.
1: Yeah, it's cheap. Oh, it's I cheap... get what
0: he's doing. He's making a joke. That one scene, he means a scene on the beach at the end. Uh. And what he's saying is the effect of the... Moon surface filming is so effective, <laughs> he's making a joke that it's not even Lanzarote. Alright, uh, right, okay. I guess. Okay, next bullet point. The first TARDIS scene should have been Malcolm Tucker ranting at Courtney about how effing unspecial she is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Mm. <clears throat> okay, here he goes. Next bullet point. <coughs> I dislike Courtney being so incompetent and sometimes annoying. I mean, she puts pictures of the moon on Tumblr. Her phone camera must be really good quality to produce production photo quality. But Courtney can be quite good, an improvement on Nightmare and Silver Girl. Yeah, I think we've kind of covered that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I straight up do not believe that the whole world could actually be bothered to get up and turn off all their lights. I suppose it could have been a simultaneous lights-off organised by the government or governments, mm. but that's unlikely. But actually, no, I saw somebody else talk about that, and the way the lights go off is like the national grid has been turned off. a yeah, government's made a decision mm. and has turned off the nat- national grid. And, of course, people have also brought up the fact that it's only half the planet, you see.
2: Mm.
0: And what else? I suppose the point they're making is, what if the other half of the planet had voted the other way? Yeah. But let's be honest, if all the countries on the side of the Earth facing you have voted one way, it's extremely unlikely mm. that even a slight majority, let alone the whole of the other side of the planet, hadn't, I think you get enough votes to count to make a decision there. Okay. <clears throat> How exactly would that broadcast from Clara manifest itself and who would hear it? Honestly, Kieran, I think you're thinking way too deeply about this. Oh, yeah. I think she says at the start, anyway. Do you know what? Things like this, we've only watched this episode once, but things like this, you don't remember afterwards, but they're generally covered. I think she says at the start of the broadcast, this is something that everybody needs to hear, in effect. Mm. And to whomever she's uh, sending the message to, you would then and because you don't see it all as an entire unbroken scene, presumably there would be, and famous JR for saying this, there's a scene you don't see where it's organised that the broadcast goes around the planet. Yep. It's not stretching disbelief too much. I think, he says, Clara's reaction was mostly unjustified. We have a saying here in Australia, it's, be less of a bitch, Clara. We use it all the time often when watching Doctor Who. Right, Clara's reaction to the Doctor at the end. That's
1: something we had to bring up. Mm. Should we do it now? Mm, yeah, if you like. Do you think it was realistic? Yes, I do.
0: Yeah, I thought it was realistic as well. I mean, I think- it,
1: it's a, it comes down to personality traits. Somebody else might not have taken it in the same way, but I, I definitely, well, she's mad with him for abandoning her and leaving her to something as, as important as that, and she gets the, she just gets the impression that he's toying with them.
0: This is also foreshadowed in Deep Breath, mm. where he leaves her in the cellar or whatever it is, Yeah. and she can't be certain that he's going to come back. Let's not the-
1: forget as well that he's been a completely different personality up till fairly recently. So for him to start behaving in this way, it's it's possible that to her it's these are conscious decisions he's making rather than person personality traits. And also, of course, so
0: she's never been forced into making a decision like this before. She has made big decisions like this before. She's the one who saves Gallifrey mm. in uh, The Day of the Doctor. Mm. And uh, in Series 7B, um, there's a couple of instances where she also makes those kinds of decisions, throwing herself into the Doctor's timeline in the name of the Doctor, for mm. one. Mm. But I think also in The Rings of Akaten, or oh, I'm mistaken. But there mm. are occasions when she does this kind of stuff in 7B. It's almost like, to me, it feels like the Doctor sees that she's capable of making the big decisions. Mm. And so, when it comes down to it, at the end of Kill the Moon, he says to himself, I know she's capable of making this decision, and it will mean more if it's made by a human being without recourse to an outsider. Yep. The trouble is... When she's made these decisions before, she's made them in conference with the doctor. Mm. And on this occasion, not only does he leave her to it by herself and entirely by herself, but he doesn't tell her that's what he's
1: doing. He doesn't... It's not just her, though, is it? He leaves Courtney there as well. No, no, no.
0: no the humans, right? Yeah. He takes himself
1: off away from the humans, yes, right? Yes, yes.
0: Because he knows even if Courtney and Lundvig are there, that Clara herself Mm. is capable Mm. of making that decision. Mm. Because he's seen it. It's tested. In his mind, it's tested that whatever Courtney and Lundvig come to a conclusion about, Clara will do the right thing because he knows Mm. that is what Clara does. Mm. But he doesn't tell her that he knows that that's what she'll do. He kind of, the way he throws the decision to her is a real balls-in-your-court moment. Mm. And for all that he says about what he's going to do, he never explains that he's doing it because he's seen that he can trust her. Yeah. So when it comes down to it at the end, when he comes back and she's made the decision and uh, he turns up and he's all, hey, you made the decision, bravo, I knew you would do it. Mm. She has not had to face that kind of a thing on her own before. No. When I say on her own, lundvig courtney fair enough the doctor if you've got a huge you know a momentous decision to make like she makes in the day of the doctor if the doctor's there Mm. then she can say this is what you should do and the doctor could say oh yes of course you're right so she gets that backup Mm. he'd kill the moon Mm. he takes himself off entirely Mm. when she makes the decision She doesn't have anybody to say, is this right, before she presses the button. And so she has to press the button herself, because for all that he's seen her making the right decisions, he's never actually seen her press the button, because that's not what she does. Mm. And even in the name of the Doctor, when she throws herself into the timeline, that's not quite the same thing, because she's saving the one person and making herself sacrifice, rather than saving a species and making a sacrifice on somebody else, in this case, the egg, the space dragon's behalf. Mm. So this is not something she's had to face before. And the way he does it, this new doctor, he's not a doctor who explains things. No, no. He's a doctor who will. And into the Dalek, where he throws the little battery at the guy who's about to die, Mm. and then laughs about it afterwards when he says, Top layer, if you want to say a few words. This is doctor who will do things like that, who will leave people out in the cold. In these decision-making processes, but it's
1: above the friendship thing, isn't
0: it? I mean, as far as
1: she's concerned, he's he's undermined their friendship.
0: Well, he's made a really intellectual decision. Yeah. that's made no. It's taken not taken her emotional response into account at all. So that was a huge thing he did. Mm-hmm. So you can, but you can see why he would do that from his perspective. Oh, absolutely, especially yeah. in this incarnation. Yeah. But you can also see why she'd take why she would take so hard against it afterwards, because I wouldn't like to be left with it. De- you know, even on a personal level, at home, if there was a big decision to be made in the house, I wouldn't like to be left entirely cold to make a decision no, like that. No. You would want your family involved. Mm-hmm. And even if ultimately it comes down to you to make the decision, you need them to say yes, of course, before you actually press the button. Mm-hmm. So she presses the button on her own and that's why she loses it. And that seems entirely natural and human to me. Yes. I'm doing a lot of talking, Simon.
1: No, no, no. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Okay, next bullet point. Um, I totally guessed that the Doctor would say when I say run, run, when I was watching the Graham Norton clip. You know, he also did high the other week, didn't he? Yes, yeah. Is he... Is Peter Capaldi deliberately throwing in things from different doctors? Do you think that was in the script, or do you think Capaldi threw that in? Oh, no idea. No Because when it came down to it, did they run? Probably not. Or would the scene have worked even if they hadn't run? <laughs>
1: the I can't remember. Where are we talking again?
0: This is when, they're in, when they've made it to the space station and they've got the lights on and the spiders. Oh, yes, yes, that's that, right. Yeah. Because they don't actually make it very far. Mm, mm. I can't remember if they do actually run. I think they do, but only from one room into the next. Mm, mm. I think Peter Capaldi might be throwing things in that aren't in the script. They're on the
1: moon's surface at that point, aren't they? No, they're inside by this point. They're inside? Yeah, they're inside. I'm just trying to think that bit where... um, One of them goes off to turn the lights on. Where Courtney, where the gravity goes, and she floats up. That's after. Are they on the lunar surface, then? Parked on the lunar surface? They are. They
0: go to the space
1: station. Oh, that's right. And they're in the space station. Ah, right. The moon station. Sorry, the moon base. I'm just trying to think. Would she... She wouldn't just float up in the air, though, would she? She would just go... It would just be low gravity, wouldn't it? Like it is on the moon. She wouldn't literally float in the air.
0: Yeah, but I think there was also something else there. I'm going to have to watch it a second time for that. Mm. Do you know what I thought on first viewing... Because after I watched it the first time, I never look at anything until I've written the review, and then I look, mm. and after I looked, everybody's saying, oh, it's so logical. This is illogical, that's illogical, the others logical. And I was thinking, when I was watching it, the only point at which I thought, hmm, not so sure about that, mm. is the bit where they walk all the way from the crash shuttle to the moon base, and then um, Lundvik turns around and says, right, you'd better go back and get the bombs. And I'm thinking, well, she made him walk all the way here, and yeah. now she's making him walk all the <laughs> way back." Yeah, that's just... I'm sorry, that's just Oh, but afterwards, I (laughs) realised if she hadn't, if they hadn't walked all the way there in the first place, how would he know where to find them? Yeah, that's true. Because they probably one of them probably knew where it was, or had the whatever it is machine to find the place. Yeah. And so, if they'd have gone without him, he wouldn't have been able to find it after they'd gone.
1: Perhaps. Yeah. Well, if he wasn't able to find him, that's just men. Ah. Just to balance it out, there. All right. See what I
0: did there. (laughs) <laughs> isn't it convenient that the dragon thing laid a moon whilst the camera was looking elsewhere <laughs>
1: I yeah I
0: I agree mm. I agree that's one thing I thought was
1: oh yes, that's yes
0: but we were never going to see that <laughs> besides I think this episode looked right, quite expensive enough as it was yeah because all that grading on the moon surface there's a lot of action on the moon surface yeah yeah and that's not easy and it's probably also not cheap no um and one more bullet point from Kieran. He says, I haven't checked. Oh, but do the Sanctuary 6... Sanctuary Base 6 spacesuits space suits have the logo on it like how they buggered it up in Listen? Because apparently in Listen, the mm. uh, Sanctuary Base 6 logo is still on the spacesuit. But actually, I think I've retconned an answer to that when I say the TARDIS made yeah. them out of the Doctor's mind. So, of course, they've got the Sanctuary Base yeah. 6 logos on. <laughs> so, take that, Kieran. Um... He says, so there, see the moon, be the moon. Jr. loves the squaddy. Kieran. That was nice of him, wasn't it? And then a few minutes later, well, about 24 hours later, I think, he emails back and says, second email on the subject because I've just had some further thoughts. The pre-title scene with we've got 45 minutes to decide is a bit gimmicky. See, because there's 45 minutes in the episode. Get it? I do. Yeah, I got that.
1: Yeah, I, I think was alright. It was, right.
0: was just—it's a bit like in forty-two. Yeah, and um... I think, unlike in forty-two, because in forty-two that was obviously imposed on Chibnall, Chris Chibnall, mm. after the fact, and even Rossity Davis said, "I thought, what can we do to, you know, pump this episode up a bit? Let's make it a forty-two-minute thing," mm. and so that was added to that story after the fact, which. Never sat well with me because it always seemed like an imposition. But in this case, I think that line is added after the fact.
1: Yeah, yeah. But the so reason... Th- is it Thunderbirds as well? Was it in the th- Thunderbirds, I used to say? We've just next- got 20 minutes to save the day. Something like that. And he does it in the
0: 11th hour. Mm. But the point is, I think it's naturally in the script, the halfway point... Well, she turns the bomb on, right? Yeah. And she gives them 60 minutes. Yeah. And that's not an imposition on the script. That's just kind of naturally how drama works Mm. so at the point that Clara makes the announcement the broadcast you know 15 minutes have elapsed and 45 are left whatever, yes they've kind of deliberately made that 45 because it's a 45 minute episode and then they've shipped that line to the front of the episode so that it looks going in like it's going to be a, oh, this whole thing It's talking thing is going to the to, audience. Yeah.
1: It's for the audience to make that decision.
0: And it looks also like the episode's going to elapse in real time. Mm. But then as soon as you get into the episode, you realise it's not. No. So you can kind of relax on it again. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think it's that bad. Kieran says that leave your lights on or off idea only matters for one side of the world that the moon is facing. Right, we've dealt with that. Mm. But mainly, he says... It seems that the outcome of this episode would be the same without the involvement of the doctor. That woman from Spooks would have been killed by a spider, and so the moon dragon would have hatched and left. Also, isn't Jenna Coleman brilliant? Yes, she is. <laughs> Can't argue with him there.
1: No, she stepped up a game. Something chronic, did she? Since she came in. Yes, he
0: says the outcome of the episode would be the same without the involvement of the doctor, because Lundvik would have been killed by a spider, and the moon dragon would have hatched and left
2: Mm.
0: yeah possibly but then again that's kind of why it's doctor who because he turns up and even if he doesn't change things he changes things because as soon as he saves her from getting killed by a spider Mm. then he also needs to change things so that they play out the way they would have played out yeah so he's kind of changed things and changed things back Mm -hmm. which i think is fair enough in drama
1: yeah, and he he states near the start that it's a grey area that he's not supposed to... He doesn't know. It's a More than likely, he shouldn't interfere. And it's not like um, Revelation
0: of the Daleks where they just can't find anything for him to do.
1: No. Mm.
0: <laughs> okay, Simon. Shall we mm. get into some of the other things? Oh, my God. Right. Okay. Do you know... Well, there's one main other thing, although there were many things being talked about. Well... Okay, to preface this, one thing that I've heard and seen a lot in the last few weeks, and especially after The Caretaker, is, and this is not countryist, but this is a different way of thinking from one side of the Atlantic to the other, but the countries on the West of the Atlantic are looking at the Danny Pink storyline and how the Doctor's got a problem with him and seeing racist issues there.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Well, uh, and even if they're not saying, oh, Doctor Who's become racist, what they're saying is, is the series addressing the race issue? And the simple truth is, over here in this country, mm. we kind of, black actors, white actors, we don't even really notice the colour of the skin anymore, do we? I no, don't. No. I think it, over here in the UK, I think because of the history in North America, these things are probably still a lot more. Prevalent in people's thoughts than they are over here. Yeah. But over here in Britain, you just cast actors with very... And this always comes up when it's like, what's the next Doctor going to be? Is he going to be black, white, whatever? Yeah. To even ask the question. Because I think that's kind of an American thing to ask.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Or perhaps a foreign thing to ask. Mm-hmm. Not so much an American thing, but a foreign thing to ask. Because mm-hmm. unless you're actually resident in the UK and have been ever since you were a kid, mm-hmm. you probably wouldn't see things <clears> in the same <throat> way as we do. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there are areas of this country, and particularly when I say areas, neighbourhoods, where there's still a race issue. But that's often to do with culture rather than to do with the colour of the skin. Yeah, I don't think anybody in this country really notices the colour of your skin, unless you draw attention to it in some way. Yeah. And Mm. that would be a cultural thing rather than a race thing, as it were. Yeah, yeah. So I do not, for one minute, think that anybody working on Doctor Who was thinking, let's use this as a race card so that we can address the race issue with Danny Bank. He is just a bloke. Yeah. And... Just the bloke that Clara's fallen for. Just a bloody good actor.
1: Hmm. I don't think. Yeah. I, I'm not even I th- sure. I they... think. I think he was hired purely because of his acting skill, not for any other reason.
0: Yeah. Do you think they even actually wrote the part saying, "Right, black actor"?
1: No, I think they looked for, probably looked for chemistry between him and Jenna Coleman because of the chemistry is brilliant, really good.
0: Yeah. Right. But so you know where I'm going with this? Yeah. Go on. Okay. There's been a lot of debate. On American pods, uh, podcasts, and uh, websites, and etc., about is this episode pro life or pro choice? Right, and the answer is it's not any of those things. No, and again, here in the United Kingdom, the whole abortion thing is not an issue. No, not really. It's not something that makes the news. It's not something that's in people's thoughts. Mm. It's not a. It's not a. Um, campaign strategy for political arguments. Mm. It's not an issue. Yes, for some people in the UK, the abortion thing is an issue, Mm. but that's a very small number and the rest of the population really never considers it.
1: Not unless they're in that situation themselves.
0: No, and in which case, they consider it on a personal level, not on a religious or moral level. No, no. So I don't think it was ever in Peter Harness's mind that he was doing a story about abortion. No. And if it had been in his mind, I think he would have written a different story, perhaps only a slightly different story. But the clue, the tip-off, that he's not doing a story about abortion is the fact that the central premise of the decision Mm. is about how it affects... The people down on the planet's surface rather than what's coming out of the egg.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: What's coming out of the egg is only really an issue for the people for the three people who are sitting on the egg. Yeah. If it had been about abortion, that would have been much more of a social issue than it
1: would be about a natural issue. It's it's the physicality of it, it's the hatching of the egg. Which is going to have an effect on the planet. I think if the writer had wanted it to be some kind of analogy for abortion, then it would have been far further back in the process. It would would have have been been this creature that comes out of the egg might kill us. Yes. It would have been about
0: the creature rather than about the egg.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. It's about the egg. It's not about the creature.
0: And the decision would have been, going back to what I was just saying, just Mm. to finish that train of thought, decision would have been a social decision rather than a natural decision Mm. it wouldn't have been this thing this natural thing is happening in the sky that might cause devastation it would have been this social event is taking place in the sky Mm. should we stop the social event Mm. because Mm. then you could have brought and i mean i'm not necessarily saying that he would have in an overt way but then you could have brought religion or not necessarily religion but the kind of beliefs that you have from a religious mindset Mm. into the debate. That's never brought into the debate, not to my recollection. It's entirely about does humanity get killed off or not? Yeah. So, you know, abortion is not about does humanity get killed off or not? So he's having an entirely different debate. Mm. So
1: while there is, it's almost got. It's it's probably got more in common with talking about badger culls or the, the culling of species because it's, let's not forget it's a different species as well. Mm. Well, it, the way you could say it's you know it's it's about the human the human race finds a threat from a particular species. They're saying that species is carrying a disease. Well, the way I do we put wipe it, out yeah. mosquitoes? Do the mosquitoes. The way do... I put it is,
0: if you had a time machine, would you go back and kill Hitler at birth? Mm. That's the way I put it, because you know Hitler grows up to be a killer. Yeah. Do you go back and kill him at birth? That's not about abortion. That's about a particular person and what that particular person will do. Mm-hmm. Well, this debate is not about abortion. It's mm-hmm. not about the killing of the dragon. No. It's about what might happen if you don't. Yes. So it's not about... It's not about the act of the killing. It's about what might be the consequence of not. Yeah. And abortion is not about what might be the consequence of not. Yeah. It's about what might be the consequence of doing it. Mm. It's
1: the reverse. It's the opposite. So one of the things, to be fair to the people who were saying that it's an analogy for abortion. You can see why. There's that, yeah, there's certain things, isn't there? The thing about the baby kicking and things like that. Mm. Well, that's that's her saying, yes, it's a it's a... It's a living creature. It's a living Nature creature. Nature should be allowed to run its course. Yes. But not,
0: like I say, from that perspective. Mm-hmm. But you can see why people, especially living in countries where that's more in the national psyche, would see that link. But
1: then that's the sign of good art when it acts like a, a mirror on yeah. society. Yeah. And people take what they will from it. And as you were saying, um, sorry, was it uh, was it Christopher? Christopher Bryant who did the quote about yeah. poetry where people draw meaning from it that wasn't necessarily there when people write it and that doesn't make it a bad thing it doesn't make it a bad thing that people are talking about these things but to reflect that mirror back on the thing and start blaming the thing that's reflecting those issues yeah 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 is not do you know i think you know you said at the
0: start of this episode of this podcast that you thought it was good but not classic yeah have i persuaded you that actually it is classic yeah it probably
1: is it probably because is Because real I...
0: I think everybody who hates this episode as well hates it because it's so good and because it's reflected something back at them that they didn't like so much and I'm not saying to the people listening to this podcast at home and maybe didn't enjoy it, oh, he's saying I'm a bad person, I'm not saying you're a bad person, mm. but I think this episode
1: and oh, know, people people should be allowed to not like it, it's, yeah, I think this fine.
0: episode is magical and poetical and Exceptionally good, Mm. but I also think that because of those things, it's not your standard run of the mill Doctor Who. No, it's not. And I think that possibly that's a step too far away Mm. for some people. Yeah, yeah. But I thought, I mean, I don't think it's a 10 out of 10. No. Because, you know, like I say, that first 20 minutes was odd and disjointed and didn't seem to flow. Mm. and so I'm scoring it 9 out of 10. That's what I scored it in the review because of that, because I thought the last half an hour is 10 out of 10 stuff. The first half an hour is probably 8 out of 10 stuff because the atmosphere was good, the Mm. effects were good, Mm. the sort of, you know, the suspense was good, but it did feel a bit disjointed. Mm. Antonio Sober only got five lines, and the other poor chap only got four,
1: or whatever. (laughs) Do you want to give it a score, Simon? Yeah, I think I'll go for an 8. Rubbish. I don't. I don't think it's a nine out of ten. I don't know why. I don't know why. When I was watching, I was thinking, "My God, this is a really good one again." And maybe I was leaning towards a nine, but now I'm thinking. I'm thinking. It's was there that much? was well, me thinking. Is there that as an episode? Was there that much meat in there? But it's that after effect thing, isn't there? There's more. The meat
0: is more uh, in what the episode reflects onto you than what's actually in yeah, the episode itself. Yeah, which is really
1: clever. Which is really clever. Um, it does concern me, the the bile with which people react to these things because of what it generates in them. But um, I don't know, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that is a good thing. But, you know... Uh,
0: all right, mm. let's call it a night, Simon, because it's only the two of we us. Sta-
1: <laughs> you want to start again? No, 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 no. can we end on a positive note? Is there a positive note? I think there is. Frank Skinner's in it next week. He is.
0: And for anybody who doesn't know, Frank Skinner once mentioned me on his Saturday morning radio show on he Absolute Radio. He did, i radio. heard that, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: <laughs> Get him on this, come on, Frank, if you're listening now, because he listens to Radio Free Scarrow, doesn't he? Yeah, but he doesn't listen to us. Why not? Well, everybody listens to Radio Free Scarrow. Yeah, okay. Well, there you go. Not everybody listens to us. <laughs> so, what's, what's the British podcast that everyone listens to then?
0: Ooh, I wouldn't like to say. But oh, as soon as you tricky. brought it up.
1: Go on then. Well, I said, oh, oh, you I'm, recommended a few on Facebook this week, didn't yeah,
0: you? Yeah, I'll do it here as well. Why not? Because, I mean, some people are listening to us because of Starburst, obviously. Mm-hmm. And the other people have found us by various other means. But if you're listening to this, presumably you like Doctor Who podcasts, right? Mm-hmm. And I, there's a load, really, lots and lots and lots of Doctor Who podcasts out there. And apart from the main ones like Radio Free Scarrow and that Australian one, the Doctor Who podcast, I think that's a pretty main one. So forty two. No, 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 the Doctor Who podcast. Oh, the Dods. Yes, yeah, the one that takes
1: place in the trailer or something. Caravan, okay, right? <laughs> I don't
0: know. I apologise to the people who make it if they're listening to this, but only so
1: much time, isn't there?
0: It? Yeah, it's one of those ones where I just thought, oh.
1: Caravan? Oh, it's tricky, isn't it? Because you hear about music. There are musicians who don't listen to any music. They just make their own music. Mm. Because there isn't time.
0: Yeah. Right, but Prog to Who, I mentioned them a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. They play three prog rock tracks in the middle of every episode. (laughs) And it's great. Yeah. And their chat, they're three northern chaps, and they kind of just chat. Mm. Do you know that's what I like? When people just chat when you can just hear it, it's like three mates chatting mm. and they're saying all the things that they'd say in a pub except they're recording it right mm. and Proctor mm. Who's very much like that mm.
1: and so it's the Crinoid podcast oh is it I'd not on. heard of that until you said about it
0: well well that's just two so it's not quite as Is it a crinoid used...
1: is it not crinoid it's crinoid you twit well, that all comes from target novels yeah
0: but that's just two chats instead of three mm. but they just and they're quite south easterly yeah so they have that but and two of them are brothers as well right because this one chap who's the main chap usually does it with another chap but the other chap's been away so he's got his brother so it's two chaps who sound almost identical talking quite intelligently about dr who mm. so their chat's not quite as laid back
1: but it's very engaging mm. And obviously Diddly Dumb. Which, that goes straight down the middle, doesn't it, really? You've got that nice... Yeah, nice balance. Mm. I like to listen
0: to Progter and then Grinoid. And then Diddly Dumb, where they're all utterly insane. Yep. And then 42 to Doomsday, which is the Australian one which I listen to, which is, again, just two blokes. And even though they hate Stephen Moffat... <laughs> I pulled a face then with my fingers. Even though they... They're not big fans of Stephen Moffat. Their chat's generally pretty intelligent and also quite chatty, again, like I like. Mm. I don't like affectation. I don't like podcasts that throw stuff in like sketches and things like that. Mm. You know, if you're getting into the area of doing sketches... It's tricky, isn't it? It, mm.
1: Yeah, it's tricky to do something convincingly like that. And then I... You know, some podcasts, know the YouCast do it well, don't they?
0: The only thing I don't like about Forty Two Doomsday is the edit. I think you should just press record and put whatever the conversation was. You should put it out. Mm. And that's the great thing about Radio Free Scary: don't edit. And Proctor Who, even though they play three songs in the middle, they actually have their Skype set up so that they can do that live. So they actually are listening to the songs and carrying on with it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, the early days of this podcast when I was mixing it and I was putting all effects and stuff in. We don't have any bells and whistles now, do we? No, we don't.
0: Idiot. <laughs> right. <laughs> By the time you hear this, you'll probably have watched Mummy on the Orient Express. So, there's no point in us previewing it or anything like that. So, uh is there anything else we need to bring up?
1: No, no. Film
0: review. Film film review, yes. Shall I do a film review? Go on then. Since as, as we did a road manners review at the start, there's well, this week I watched Kite. Oh, right. Okay. You know that? I've heard of it. It's based on a 1998 Japanese anime. Right, yes. And, well, actually, in 1998, the plot was probably a bit less predictable. Mm. But actually, the plot's very predictable. Mm. But it's not about the plot, really. It's about the atmosphere and the characters. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of. Have you seen Blade? Yes. It reminded me a bit of Blade. Oh really? In that it's washed out colours mm. and it's set in a kind of slightly well it's set it's filmed in Johannesburg.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but Johannesburg is standing in for somewhere else. Although all the sporting cast have got South African accents, right? Mm-hmm. But it's one of those films where everybody's got different accents, so you don't take anything from that. Like Blade Runner in that respect, I suppose. Mm. Set sometime in the near future where society's broken or breaking down and it's about human trafficking Mm. specifically young girls Mm -hmm. and the lead character is a girl i don't know maybe 17 16 17 thereabouts Mm. who a few years previously her father who was a cop was killed hmm And she became an orphan. Both her parents were killed. She becomes an orphan. And her father's partner looks after her, trains her up to be a killing machine mm-hmm. to go after the people who killed her own parents. And this is like this mafia ring, and they called The Numbers. And so the film is her working her way towards the guy who's ultimately re- responsible for her parents' death. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you can pretty much work out how that's going to go. So I'm not going to say it here, just in case. But if you like your... Well, it's like the hit girl subplot from Mm. Kick-Ass across the entire film. Right. So that's pretty much what you expect. She dispatches a lot of people Mm. in various different ways. A bit like (laughs) The Omen. It's like each one is slightly more gory and bloodthirsty than the last... And it is pretty gory, and it is pretty bloodthirsty. And in between, there are lots of long, still, silent moments. So it's got kind of a slightly odd tone. But it's based on an anime. So if you know Mm. what to expect from an anime, they've had to tone it down because the anime was quite out there for Western audiences. Mm. So they've had to tone it down for the Western audiences, but you kind of pretty much know what to expect. She's dead attractive. She kills people with a variety of different weapons. And Samuel L. Jackson's in it. That's all you oh, need to know. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's all you need to know. Yes, yes. I give it, I think, an 8 out of 10. Okay. It wasn't... It's not one of those films that's ever going to be a classic. But if that's your kind of thing, you're going to thoroughly you, enjoy it. keep coming back to it every now and again. Like, yeah.
1: That's usually 8 out of 10, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. If mm. you
1: if you like that kind of film, then this presses all the buttons. mm What's your opinion on? I heard this week that the script is ready on Blade Runner Two. It's do been you a think? A lot of years. Yeah. Do you think certain films should just stay as a single film?
0: Not necessarily. I don't think there are any uh, sacred cows. No. Not in movies, when people think of movies as art. They're not. Mm. They're there to make money. Mm. Yeah. Okay. You will get the occasional film that is made purely for artistic reasons and you know I've never bothered to sit in a cinema for eight hours looking at a picture of the Empire State Building
1: but I'm sure somebody has mm-hmm. that's a little dig at Andy Warhol <laughs> but, but it, I mean, from a story point of view there's certain things like the first Matrix film was perfect, was a perfect little sphere. Oh well, so it was the first Star Wars film. I suppose it was yeah but it was designed to be though wasn't it Yeah. Well, so was the first Matrix
0: film Because until the money rolls in at the tiller, Mm. you don't know if there's going to be any cash for a sequel. You can think all you like Mm. about something going to be the first part of a sequel, but until the first film's a success, you're not going to get the sequels. And if the first film's open-ended in such a way as to be obvious that it is the first part of a trilogy, unless it's an already established property like The Lord of the Rings, Mm people aren't going to go and see it because everybody who comes out on the first night is going to find it very unrewarding and especially these days, going to go on social media and say so and the box office will just die. Mm, mm. So Star Wars is entirely self-contained and The Matrix is entirely self-contained. All first films are self-contained. The Godfather. Mm. Which is why, even though a lot of people say The Godfather 2 is a better film, I don't think it is because The Godfather is self-contained. Godfather 2 is not. Mm. It's not open-ended for The Godfather Part 3 but what it is is reliant upon your knowledge of the first one.
2: Mm.
0: Mm. But yeah, I don't think there are sacred cows. I think, and I feel exactly the same way about remakes. I don't think there's anything you shouldn't remake but if you're going to do a remake I think you would be better advised to remake something that's not very good so that you can improve upon it. Absolutely, yeah. Rather than... But in terms of it being a sequel, why shouldn't there be a sequel to a film that was that good?
1: And you... Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's not going to be Philip K. Dick.
0: Then the first film was only 25% of the book anyway. Oh, was it? Yeah, I mean, Mm. it was the plot from the book, but it was only 25% of the richness of the universe. Mm. Mm. Only 25% of the ideas. Thing is, I was about to say something really profound then, and it's gone. (laughs) (laughs) It's like. No, I wasn't. (laughs) The the thing is, if you come up with an idea that's like a really good idea for a film, for a script, Mm. and it's very similar to Blade Runner and you say, okay, it's very similar to Blade Runner, I'd better change this, otherwise people will just think I'm ripping off Blade Runner, then you are compromising yourself. But if you take that script to the people who are responsible for the Philip K. Digger state mm. or the film company that owns the rights and say, look, I've got this idea for a sequel to Blade Runner.
2: Mm.
0: If they look at the idea and if it was strong enough in the first place, they'll say, you're right, that works. Mm. It doesn't work to the detriment of the first No, flow, no. But it adds to the universe and takes the story on. Yes. And so instead of trying to move away from where your inspiration was and compromising yourself, mm. you just move it into that universe, which is the opposite of a compromise, because if you're thinking in those terms in the first place, you're obviously a fan of that. Mm. And so to do it in that universe is probably the most natural thing anyway. Mm. Mm. So actually... I mean, especially all these years down the line, because, you know, to do a sequel straight after a film. Like Terminator 2, it's just a remake of Terminator, but disney mm, mm. Aliens, it's got almost exactly the same plot as Alien, but just with Marines instead of, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs>
1: lackeys on a junkyard mm. spaceship. Mm. I'll tell you one film, though. I, I adore Tron. Not the greatest film ever, but I adore it because it's a, it was a one-off. Because of what it was. But I actually really, really like the sequel, because, because enough it, times elapsed for them to do something with it. Absolutely, it expands on the universe and yeah. and actually takes it to an. I don't know if you've seen Tron Legacy, but it takes it to a a level of thought,
0: right? Well, where you've you got to assume wow. that given the number of years that have gone by, a yeah. Blade Runner sequel would do the same thing. Yeah, because otherwise, what would be the point? Mm. And everybody who's involved with it has said, "I wouldn't have done it," mm. you know if it hadn't been a project that was worth doing. Mm, mm. So they've, you know, made this decision, got on board with this. So it has, so, you know, I reserve judgment till I see it mm. on whether it will be good, but I have to imagine that it will be.
1: Yeah, yeah. It right. will be over standard. Yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah, yeah. another film I watched uh, a couple of nights ago um, and I haven't got the details to hand but if you have a certain mail order company's new film service which used to be called Love Film what's it called, Hate Film now? Amazon Prime Okay, Uh, it's great for B-movies and things like that I'm not saying, I'm not recommending one film company over another one but but I found a, a strange foreign film called Time Crimes from 2007. And if you like your timey-wimey stuff, if you don't get enough from Stephen Moffat, then it is, it's is—it's a bit of a laugh. Foreign language? Foreign language. What language? I can't remember. It's European. <laughs> you were just reading the subtitles. I was, yeah. I wasn't really... <laughs> <laughs> oh, fair enough. No, but it's its strange. It's um, uh, The setting is there's a, uh, a guy sort of older middle-aged guy, married, and that's just like a normal day for him. And circumstances are such that somehow he manages to fall into a time machine. And it takes him back literally an hour. Have you ever seen 1201? No. Right, you've seen Groundhog Day. Yes.
0: 1201, I think, came out around about the same time. It's a real cheapo film. I don't know if it was deliberately inspired by, but it's about the scientific experiment. Mm. And at 12.01 every day, the entire world goes back 24 hours and lives through the same day again. So like Groundhog Day, mm. you just get the same day repeating. Mm. But in Groundhog Day, it's kind of a romantic comedy, right? Mm. In 12.01, it's about the experiment. And can one of the guys who was involved in the experiment, and because of his involvement in the experiment, if I remember rightly, he's the only one who knows what's going on, So he's the only one aware of the fact that they're going through the same day over and over. Oh, okay. Can he somehow stop the experiment? Because the experiment happens at 12.01, hence the title. And it's one of those odd films that kind of doesn't sound like much, Mm. but it's just got a real charm. And the characters all feel like real people and you really feel for them Mm. and you really get involved in their story. Because it's not just him, but there's several other characters that you keep seeing throughout the same day. And what he does obviously affects what they do. So things change naturally. But each time they go back to the square one, so he has to change it again in different ways. Mm. And so it's just like Groundhog Day in that respect. But what it does, it does with such charm. And it's just like a cheapo 90 minute Knockoff movie, it's great, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if ever that comes up on the TV listings or whatever, or if it's on Amazon Prime, check it out. Uh Well worth it. Excellent.
1: This time crimes, if you see it, it looks like a video nasty. The cover is the, the bandages all over his face, yeah, but it's nothing like that, not really. Oh, but that's why you picked it. Uh, I can't remember, even remember why, because the ratings are about four out of five people are giving it. Oh, yeah, really good ratings. So, yeah, it was. It's not that long. It's something to fill an hour or so. So, yes, time crimes. Okay. <clears throat>
0: as soon as we're doing film reviews because the Starburst radio podcast isn't around at the moment, should we do food news?
1: <laughs> food news? Well, they always do
0: food news. Oh, do they? Yeah, oh, only they. by accident, though. Okay. I'm joking. Uh, until next week, Simon. Uh, I was JR. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon. Ha, <laughs>